Hello and welcome to Future Fundamentals, the podcast direct from the Chief Investment Officer at Deutsche Bank's private bank that takes a long-term look at investment challenges. And today we're looking at something we perhaps used to take advantage of without really thinking about too much value chains and their sustainability. Economies, countries, government companies care also about efficiency, care about cost, uh, but supply chains are getting much more resilience. And we are in a context where I would say we are moving uh, more and more from just uh, in time to just in case. We have again to revisit the challenges we are facing. How to manage high levels of interdependencies, to diversify also the dependencies, not being just dependent on one country or one area, thinking about who else can be included in there. I'm Guy Ruddle, and I think it's fair to say that one of the lasting impacts of the pandemic has been the realisation of just how fragile our global value chains can be. Major events like COVID and the Russia-Ukraine conflict, as well as ongoing challenges such as shifts in international trading relationships and climate change, have all impacted both the availability and the price of goods on our shelves. They've also had an impact on the way businesses, investors and economists are thinking about the future of this vital part of the modern economic system. And that includes two people we could talk to now. Marcus Muller, who is the Chief Investment Officer for ESG at Deutsche Bank's private bank and an economist by training. And Marion Labour, who is Senior Economist at Deutsche Bank Research and a lecturer at Harvard University. Welcome to both of you. You've both been on the podcast before, so I should perhaps say welcome back. Thank you very much, Guy. Thank you. And good to see you, Arion. Thank you, Guy. Very glad to be there. And nice to see you again, Marcus. Let's get going on this. And Marion, perhaps I could ask you first, you know, when we talk about value chains, what do we what do we really mean? So when we talk about uh, value chain, basically, we refer to international production sharing, which is a phenomenon where production is basically broken into activities and tasks uh, which are carried out in different countries. So, so basically, it means that uh, the operations are spread across national borders uh, instead of being confined to the same location. And the products are made, uh, they are much more complex uh, than a pin. And how have they evolved? How has this sort of process of making stuff, bringing stuff together from inter- you know international parts of the world, different parts of the world, how's that evolved over time? So we had a, a very steady growth uh, for the previous half century, and it has uh, unfortunately uh, plateaued in recent years. When I talk about global trade relative to GDP, uh, and we can see that uh, global value chains have been facing few recent problems. Uh, first, with global trade hit uh, by the two 2009 financial crisis uh, recovery. Uh, then we had the COVID-19 pandemic uh, and we had as well the Russia-Ukraine war and very recently the inflation rise and the deteriorating uh, global climate. But it's it's fair to say that, that over that long period of time, you, uh, countries and pro- uh, companies and everything have become much more interdependent than they were before, right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, the the level of interdependence that we are seeing these days uh, is very, very high, uh, given that supply chains are very well integrated. And Marcus, you know, as I said at, at the at the beginning, we sort of taken, you know, value chains uh, for granted uh, over the years as, as a good thing because they perhaps have reduced costs, and you know, the the economic argument of you produce the you know, you you do what you're good at yourself and buy in what other people are good at and all that sort of stuff. Uh, 
as a overall, do you think what's happened to value chains has been a force for good economically in the world? Yeah, so we know this exactly what you said based on on the example between Portugal and England, right? So um, what Ricardo many many years or sen- um, centuries ago has revealed the comparative cost advantage, and this of course has led over the last years and decades to what, what Marion correctly has described, but also to the reduction of poverty from 36% to roughly 9.3%. And as you also can read in the publication, which we which we recently have published um, on this topic. But at the same time, we also have seen that these value chains are predominantly focusing on a few countries, not all countries. So it means others have been excluded deliberately or not deliberately, because of the question has been, are they able to deliver this cost advantage as well? So we get it in the competition on the one side. And on the other side, the development of this globalization has been questioned because even if we need these resources from other countries or the labor, which is also a resource from other countries, the question is what kind of negative impact such a trait can have on local systems. Local system means local societies as well as the natural machine. So nature, which produces ecosystem services, which are then induced in this global trade system. These are the questions we, of course, have to discuss about, but also further examples if we think about um, food supply discussion which we maybe will touch on later as well this is something where we now think about have to think about from a resilience point of view and inclusionary point of view as well yeah so so that's a a really good yeah food supply marin is a really good example because you know when you talk about the disruption uh, that is the most i guess most obvious example for for most people you know when they go to the supermarket they see you know, less full shelves than they used to have. But, but overall, how severe do you think across all sectors has the disruption that we're, that we're talking about been in the last few years? So, so it really depends on the sector. But for example, if I take the technology sector, uh, the first thing that comes uh, to my mind is obviously uh, semiconductors. Semiconductors, uh, chips, uh, were the world's most traded product uh, in 2020. And they are used in almost every electronic uh, product that we have. But uh, one country uh, represents like over 90% of the most uh, semiconductors, the most advanced semiconductors. It's Taiwan. Uh, And over 50% of all the semiconductors. There is even a step before semiconductors, and this is NEON. NEON is, for instance, exported by the Ukraine. And um, the supply of NEON has been completely disrupted through the war. But also other areas as well, as we know that Ukraine has been a very important supplier of wheat for for the world. And this, of course, has also an influence or had an influence on wheat prices, which then consequently also has um, affected the the situation in some African countries or in the entire food food chain globally. And this has been discussed um, in, in the news very heavily. So... We see it's not just really technology, it's technology, of course, and it's important, but it goes further than assembling and it touches the basic needs. And 
if we take, for example, raw material supply chain disruption, they are also very, very important. Um, when we talk about rare earth uh, metals, for example, China accounts for around 70% of global rare earth production last year. Uh, and the U.S. imports 73% of its rare earth components from China. Is it as simple as saying that we've spent 50 years uh, concentrating on efficiency and cost over resilience? I think the, the resilience questions has not been the obvious one at this point in time. But now with the pandemic, with the war at the border of Europe, um, and the question of climate change shed a complete different light on this efficiency. And there is now a discussion needed and a discussion already going on about the trade-off between efficiency but also on social and economic and environmental impact, which in the end, if not considered, will turn out into cost as well. So this is this is now now a next phase, I would call it, of globalization, which is very often criticized as maybe a deglobalization. But we should be careful about this because this bears a huge opportunity as well. Marion, we, we're talking about this just as you have a, a report coming out on this subject. Perhaps why we're talking about it now. And something struck me about this is this this is this this has grabbed me from reading it. Uh, talking about the idea of moving from just in time to just in case. We need a suppression which are much more resilient. Uh, of course, we we economies, countries, government companies care also about efficiency, care about cost, uh, but supply chains are getting much more re resi resilience. I mean, we are, companies are onshoring, friendshoring, uh, and we are in a context where I would say we are moving uh, more and more from just uh, in time to just in case to make sure we have the right level of stocks uh, and, and we can take care of the, to manage better the stocks. Yeah. So, look, I think that sort of put us in a position where we fully understand what's happened and how we've got to where we are. But, of course, the, the key question is, is what we do next and how we go forward. And I guess part of that is what, what are our, you know, what, do we, what do we want to do? And then another part is how do we actually do it? Marcus, what, for, from your point of view, what's the sort of the main things that we need to think about in, in, in how we react or how we, how we move forward in terms of supply chains, these value chains, both in terms of what's good for, for our economies, but also the economies that might be supplying us in the future. Yeah. So I think we have again to revisit the challenges we are facing, how to manage high levels of interdependencies. So for example, um, on technology, as well as the question around foreign direct investments and savings. Um, managing these relationships, I think, creates codependencies. This is this is important. So to diversify also the dependencies, not being just dependent on one country or one area, thinking about who else can be included in there. And this dependency must be mutual. If a dependency is just one-sided, it imposes a risk. And we have seen this on the energy supply situation in Europe. If, if, for instance, Russia has been as independent on Europe as Europe was dependent on Russia, I think the situation could have um, turned out a little bit differently, for instance. Sure. This is, this is important um, on the one side to review and enhance 
the question of interdependencies. The second one, in, in my point of view, is to ask how to handle technology. Um, because we need technology in order to get the productivity levels um, increased. Because without productivity gains or further productivity gains, it will be also difficult for the global village we are living in um, to provide wealth and income and wealth for societies is a glue for stability. And thirdly, we need to ask again how to ensure sustainability by mitigating social and environmental impacts. These are the areas. And the answer to these areas will mean an enhancement of the way how we see globalization. I think this can bring us to the next quality level. And we have a lot of things that needs to be managed because an economic decoupling would cripple world economy. And some estimates put projected global welfare losses of tech and trade decoupling at over 10% of GDP. So, yes, first, it's really how we can manage this high level of dependence. And technology has uh, always been the driver of change uh, in globalization. But now we are living uh, again in a different world uh, where it appears to have become a source of real-time vulnerabilities. I mean, as we mentioned uh, with semiconductors, with wear of metals, uh, food supply and so on, uh, it, it's it, it's. Yeah, it's, re it's really becoming a source of vulnerability. So this is not uh, just due to disruption of shipping of physical components, but also the instant spread of technology services and uh, the destabilizing effects that, that, uh, that it can have. I'm fascinated by this idea of, of not sort of rowing back on globalization, but making it more spread and less, to, you know, having more supplies. But that's easy for us to sit here and saying that, Marcus. But what you're, <laughs> yes. what you're, what you're, what you're arguing for is, is saying that uh, countries and organizations and companies and everything need to go out and invest in developing new suppliers of existing goods and services that they're already getting cheaper. Uh, and that's good long-term business and, and trade practice, but it's very hard. Are you absolutely confident that people yes, and organizations will do that? And, and, and you know why? You know why? Because planetary boundaries, so the pressure points coming from, from nature um, will lead to this. Um, so the risk we already have discussed caused by by corona right and and the dependency on just few value chains and not very well diversified value chains so planetary boundaries will show us this this problem because food prices very likely also will change because of further droughts water scarcity etc but we are we are also with the 21st century in a time where technology will do its trick because in order to manage the risk and efficiency trade-off of value chains, you need information. And this was very costly to get information decades ago. But now with technological advantages and data available, this is a little bit easier and transaction costs can be here reduced. We can reduce easier asymmetric information profiles, if I now talk as an economist, which makes then all the decision for going with a second or third or fourth supplier may be easier than before, but nonetheless, um, you're right. It's not an easy done deal, um, but no one said that economics and globalization is easy, right? We should take this serious. But what I mean, and what maybe also Marion is, can, can agree to is that 
this has a huge opportunity but yeah. for this we need change that's right. That's that's true. And but but Marion, anyone who's listened to um, more than one episode of Future Fundamentals will know that Marcus is burdened with extreme <laughs> optimism in, in in life. Even if I'm German, right? Even if I'm German. <laughs> do you I, I, do you share his his optimism? I share his optimism. The the only thing where I'm slightly worried, I think it's important to distinguish between what is happening in the short term, medium term, long term, and it's. We need to diversify. Uh, I fully agree with what Marcus said. I'm slightly more worried about when is it going to happen? Because, for example, we talked about semiconductors. It takes time to bring back uh, value chains, production chains. I mean, the U.S. have been trying to bring back the supply chain for, for a while ago, actually, from Taiwan. And it takes a lot of time. It's not easy to do. Um, for another example, if you take care of metals, I mean, we in January... Uh, the largest uh, European uh, reservoir of uh, rare earth metals has been discovered in Sweden. But it's not going to happen uh, straight. I mean, it, uh, it can take between 10 to 15 years uh, to extract, uh, refine all these rare earth metals. So, so definitely diversification is coming, but I'm, my only worry is about the timing. These are the, the, the times in transformation situations of economies which are very fragile. Right, because there there are adjustments needed in societies, and I also think, and, and I'm now now thinking loud, that we might see a difference in globalization in general. And I do not mean the portmanteau word um, globalization. It's not just a new and revisited combination of globalization and local production and global trade. It is also that we potentially in future won't just trade physical goods. It might go. Um, towards the direction of rather services. But overall, this must be managed, as, as Marion said. And this means also that countries which are currently not included but have a potential there needs also to prepare themselves in order to become an attractive trade partner in this context. And when it counts for countries, it counts also for companies. So they, they need to make them ready all this new development phase in order to become attractive partners. And in the meantime, while all of this is going on, you mentioned companies there. What do you think individuals and companies and investors and people like that and everybody should be, what, they should, what should they be thinking about in this area? What should, what should they be doing perhaps? Yeah, so um, as an investor, if you subscribe to this hypothesis, Marion, I would just have let out then you should, of course, try to understand the investments you plan to do based on these facts. So corporates, as well as countries who do embrace this change, have a different appeal and have a higher potential for success than companies who try to resist this change. But this is the inevitable truth of social economic de development in, in general. Secondly, I would say there are some steps also in the context of sustainable global supply chains in the context of ESG. This is, again, identifying the proportion and types of producers in the supply base and the question of um, um, adaptive capacities. Or secondly, the question around um, the full coverage of producers, region, products um, in a policy scope. Um, um, certainly, um, the coordination question with other policy-making actors, private versus public, or 
also the question of enhance the inclusivity and complementarity of policies. It must be a fit. And also, fourthly, to the question of cooperation, how to co-produce things based on, on a different approach towards a competitive, a competitive advantage. And there are many more, but if I, as an investor, take this into account, I will really find a company who will be able to compete in this world. And as a bank, we, of course, advise our clients from the corporate side in this development because we are active in different sectors. We talk to many, many, um, many, many companies in different countries. I think we have an advantage here as being part of the solution in order to support this development. Plenty to think about then. Uh, so thank you both very much for being here and, and for, for doing that. I sort of feel we slightly sort of skimmed the surface of, uh, of this subject. And I think I, I would recommend that listeners go and read the report that, that we mentioned a little earlier and what, uh, what this podcast is based on. It's called The Great Decoupling, Rethinking Sustainable Globalization. You can find it at uh, deutschewealth.com. There's plenty of thought-provoking stuff in there. Uh, that's it for now, though. Thank you both very much, as I say. Thank you for listening and see you next time. In Europe, Middle East and Africa, as well as in Asia Pacific, this podcast may be considered marketing material, but this is not the case in the US. No assurance can be given that any forecast or target can be achieved. Forecasts are based on assumptions, estimates, opinions and hypothetical models which may prove to be incorrect. Past performance is not indicative of future returns. Performance refers to a nominal value based on price gains and losses and does not take into account inflation. Inflation will have a negative impact on the purchasing power of this nominal monetary value. Depending on the current level of inflation, this may lead to a real loss in value, even if the nominal performance of the investment is positive. Investments come with risk. The value of an investment can fall as well as rise, and you might not get back the amount originally invested at any point in time. Your capital may be at risk. The services described in this podcast are provided by Deutsche Bank AG or by its subsidiaries and or affiliates in accordance with appropriate local legislation and regulation. Deutsche Bank AG is subject to comprehensive supervision by the European Central Bank, by Germany's Federal Financial Supervisory Authority and by Germany's Central Bank. Brokerage services in the United States are offered through Deutsche Bank Securities Incorporated, a broker-dealer and registered investment advisor which conducts investment banking and securities activities in the United States. Deutsche Bank Securities Incorporated is a member of FINRA, NYSE and SIPC. Lending and banking services in the United States are offered through Deutsche Bank Trust Company Americas, member FDIC, and other members of the Deutsche Bank Group. The products, services, information, and or materials referred to within this podcast may not be available for residents of certain jurisdictions. Copyright 2022 Deutsche Bank AG and or its subsidiaries. All rights reserved. This podcast may not be used, reproduced, copied or modified without the written consent of Deutsche Bank AG.